Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're excited to bring you another episode in our year-end toolkit series, addressing some of the key issues you may be dealing with in the year-end close process. And once again, for this episode, we're joined by a special guest host, Kevin Vaughn, a partner in our national office. He'll be bringing his own perspectives to this discussion. I guess just to kind of pick up on the revolver theme, just really look at your agreements, make sure you really understand how they're working. You might have to talk to the, you know, maybe... It's someone else who kind of set up the agreement, so you might need to involve other people, but good to get that, you know, idea up front. Back again for this episode is Suzanne Stefani, a director in our national office. Today, she's focusing on key reminders related to debt. So as you're tidying up the financials and going through final checks, there's some common questions that may come up in these areas, especially around classification, that you'll want to make sure that you'll get right. With that, let's hear what Suzanne has to say. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Year in Toolkit. Uh, and I'm joined today by Suzanne Stefani, uh, who's a director in our national office. Uh, and today we're going to talk about balance sheet classification of debt. Uh, so welcome back. Thank you. I guess maybe before we get started, just, just to tee up a little bit, why is this important? Why is this one of the topics that we're mm-hmm. covering at this if, as part of this year end series? Certainly, I think it's an important Debt classification is important to get right. Uh, it leads to a lot of uh, calculations of ratios uh, and things like that that investors and lenders are using uh, to gauge a company's um, liquidity, credit risk. Uh, and so, so it's important that companies get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do tend to get a lot of uh, a lot of questions on this topic towards the end of the year yes. mm-hmm. uh, because there's just a lot of things that may impact uh, and even subsequent to year, you, you know, and we'll get into some of those changes, like changes that could happen and, and thinking about how do those impact the classification mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the year. And then just more broadly, right, the economic conditions, we've talked about this over yep. the last couple of years, but the economic conditions uh, certainly put a lot of pressure on on debt and a lot more focus on debt and, and credit risk and things like that. Um, we have a higher interest rate environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of debt arrangements, you're going to see higher interest payments uh, as those rates uh, reset on those. You have inflation uh, and volatility in the markets. Um, you know, looking back over the past year, right, we've still had to deal with a lot of inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's driving higher costs. Uh, could be impacting revenues, uh, operating results, and things like that. So, so all of that kind of I think comes together uh, yeah. and and uh, serves the basis for for why we felt like this was a good one to to hit on uh, again as part of this year in series. Yeah, I think because like with all with those things you mentioned with the economy and things like that, we're seeing a little bit like less cash on hand sometimes. You know struggling to make payments. So you see default situations, um, covenant violations might be more likely collateral values can go down, borrowing base changes, lots of things going on that could impact debt classification. So just thought it was a good idea to give some reminders for year end. You know, the guidance here, there's some aspects of it that can be fairly straightforward. Uh, mm-hmm. But as with, it seems like everything in, in accounting, there's there's exceptions and there's yeah. there's buts. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's easy, but uh, yeah. unless you have this situation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sometimes that uh, it's it, you're just going to look at the, the classification based on, you know, the, the facts and circumstances that existed at the balance sheet date. Mm-hmm. 
but there's other times mm-hmm. where the guidance requires you to look at uh, different subsequent events. Um, so those might be like waivers, refinancings, yep. we'll get into some of those. Yep. So maybe to, to start us off with some of those subsequent events uh, that could impact, um, I'll start with refinancings okay. um, that happen after the balance sheet date. So so maybe it's easiest. I'm an I'm an examples person, so I'll just walk yeah, through. Me too. Maybe I'll tee up <laughs> an example, and and you can you can tell us how to how to do it. Okay. Um, so calendar year and company has twelve thirty one uh, balance sheet date, mm-hmm. uh, and then they have debt that's due in February. Uh, okay. So so two months after the balance sheet. Contractually, it's short term, so it's current. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's the situation. But the company, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times, what we'll hear from companies is, yeah, that debt comes due then, but I completely plan to refinance that debt mm-hmm. uh, on a long-term basis or, or extend it out beyond 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have the intent and ability to do that. So in those situations, the guidance will allow you to, to if you have the intent and ability, uh, you can classify it in, in, as non-current, but, mm-hmm. but I think easier said than done, like yes. <laughs> intent and ability is a very judgmental uh, item. So maybe what do you have to do to, to show intent and ability? Like what's yeah. the standard there? Yeah. And so we do get a lot of questions on that. And so there's two ways a company could demonstrate intent and ability to refinance short-term debt on a long-term basis. So one, this is a little bit easier and not so judgmental. They can actually go out and issue long-term debt or equity before the financial statements are issued and use those proceeds to repay that short-term debt. So if you go to your example I like examples too, and I even like to add numbers, so I'm going to expand. <laughs> so let's assume in your example, the debt was $100 million of debt on the balance sheet at year end, and it's coming due in February, like you said. So if the company goes out and issues new long-term debt of at least $100 million and uses that cash from that new debt to pay down the old debt, the old debt should be classified as non-current at 1231, and the company would need to disclose the refinancing, you know, on in their financials. So the reader knows actually what happened. So they have to, just the ordering is important though. They have to issue the debt, take the proceeds to pay off the old debt all before the financials are issued. They can't use cash that they have on hand to pay off the old debt and then issue new debt, right? It can't work that way. You have to issue the new debt first, take the cash and pay it off. So that's that's fairly straightforward. I I think another situation though that comes up that it can be a little bit more complex is maybe using a financing agreement uh, to, to mm. try to, you, know, you have a, a financing agreement in place and, and you want to refer to that uh, even though you haven't maybe executed on it yeah. um, uh, and, and drawn down on it. So what are the things that you would think about in, in those type of situations and are there any yep. additional uh, nuances, if you will? Yes. Yeah. So that's definitely the one that um, is harder to get debt to non-current with a financing agreement. So a company can rely on a long-term financing agreement. So that's a situation where they have a commitment to obtain funding. But like you said, they haven't actually gotten um, the cash yet, but they have someone standing ready to commit to give them the cash. So you can use this financing agreement to get the debt to non-current if it meets certain conditions. But the thing is, it's a really high hurdle to meet those conditions. So if we go back to your example with the debt due in February, Let's say the company, they have this debt coming due in February, but they also have a revolving line of credit already there, already in place at the balance sheet day, let's say. And if they were to borrow on that revolver, let's just say all the borrowings are long-term, maybe like five years or something, the company 
can assert that they intend to draw on the revolver when the debt matures in order to repay. Okay, that's their intention. They can assert that. But the question is, can they rely on that to get into non-current? They have the intent, but do they have the ability? And the guidance kind of puts a really high hurdle on determining if you have the ability actually to use that agreement. So the agreement has to meet certain conditions, has to be long-term. Okay, easy. Um, No violations of covenants. Lender has to be capable of honoring it. But the one that trips people up is it can't be canceled for subjective reasons. And that's usually the one that we usually have issues with. Because um, usually these agreements, the financing agreements, lots of times revolvers, they have subjective acceleration clauses in them which is a problem because then the debt is being canceled for a subjective reason. So a subjective acceleration of clause is a clause that gives the lender some sort of subjectivity in accelerating repayment of the debt or refusing to lend, right, to even give the money. And it comes in a variety of forms. It's really common. A lot of most debt agreements have them. Often you'll see them maybe come across as an event of default, like, It's an event of default if there's a material adverse change in the business. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's usually subjective. It's up to the lender to determine what that is. So it's subjective. Like, say, a company loses its major customer. For some reason, the company might think not think that's a material adverse change that would result in an event of default, but the bank might think it is. So if the bank thinks it's an event of default, it's subjective, right? Because it's in the eye of what they think, right. you know, it's not black and white. It's not like a debt service coverage ratio or something like that. Right. So another one that we see a lot in these like revolvers or financing agreements too, is like each time the company goes to draw on the agreement, it has to assert like usually a rep or something that there's been no material change in the business, maybe since the last audited financial statements. Again, that's subjective because you might, if you're the company, think, nope, nothing, I'm, I'm good, I'm going to rep to it. But the bank may think, no, this happened and, and this was a material change, so I'm not going to lend to you. So that's a stack as well. And so that's a common one that we see in the revolver. So for that reason, lots of times you're not able to use those commitments to get your short-term debt long term. So it's really important just to kind of look at those agreements. But I have to say a lot, most often they you'll find some sort of sack in it, yeah. subjective acceleration clause in there that you can't really use that agreement. Yeah. And sometimes you might, you might hear, and this, this may come up later as well mm-hmm. in covenants, you might hear companies say, well, yeah, those exist, those, but those have existed in the past agreements and the yeah. lender has always, never has it. never, <laughs> you know, not given me the new agreement. So, yeah. but, but those, the past history for that does not go into this. This is an evaluation uh, at this point. And if if that clause is there to your point, um, even though, again, you'd look at it and say, historically, they've there's never been a problem with this. You have to, yeah. you, it's still, they the could existence. this time still come back and say, yeah. no, this time. And that's that's where you get into the, the problem. Right. Um, the existence is a problem, not, there's no like probability assessment. Right. Yeah. 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 So maybe maybe switching gears, the other big subsequent event that that might happen uh, to impact balance sheet classification uh, is a waiver for a covenant violation. Uh, so we'll start with a simple example: mm-hmm. a company violates the covenant, um, you know, based on the twelve thirty one numbers. Um, so so at the twelve thirty one balance sheet, they're in, they're in violation. Uh, but then in January, they notify the lender. The lender gives them a waiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how would how would they think about that classification? 
Yeah. So it kind of depends on how everything's structured. But so you get a waiver. Great. It's not automatically non-current just because a waiver was received. There's a few things that the guidance gives you to think about. So one, look at the waiver itself. So the lender has to give up its right to force repayment for that particular covenant violation. So that violation at 1231 that you talked about for at least 12 months from the balance sheet. Now, usually what I see is the lender is going to waive its right to force repayment based on that particular violation indefinitely. Like it's not going to be able to come back 12 months from now and put the debt because of it. But, you know, just kind of look at that and see how it's um, structured. So that's usually pretty straightforward. The other thing that you have to look at is the probability assessment. So you violate this covenant, you know, say it was like a debt service ratio or something like that. You have to determine if it's probable that the company will fail that same covenant or a more restrictive one again within 12 months from the balance sheet date. So in your example, right, the company would look to see if it has that same or more restrictive covenant that has to be met in the next 12 months. A lot of the covenants that I see are quarterly. So usually you do have to keep meeting it in the next 12 months. Then they have to assess if it's probable those covenants will not be met. If it's probable the covenants will not be met in the next quarters within the year, it has to be current, even though the waiver was received. Um, But if they can get to it being at least reasonably possible that it will be met, then non-current would be appropriate. Um, And you would kind of look at your current estimates and forecasts to figure out if it's possible that it would be met. Okay. So basically that violation of that covenant when you then do that probability assessment, it, it just automatically pulls in those those future potential covenant yeah. violations. When you're in that um, waiver scenario, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's helpful. So maybe touching on that a little bit, the different angle of that, you're in compliance with the debt covenant at 1231, but at that point, you, you expect in a future period in the next 12 months that you're going to violate the covenant but you, you're not in the, to clarify, you're not in the example where you have the violation at 1231. So that probability assessment you just talked yeah. about, but you're, you're okay at 1231, but looking ahead in the next 12 months, you think you're going to violate it. Yeah. Uh, how would that play out? Yeah. So like you're good at the balance sheet. You didn't have to get a waiver. You're not in that probability assessment, anything like that. In that case. So that's a situation where classification is purely based on facts and circumstances at the balance sheet date. So at 1231, there's no violation, so non-current would be appropriate. Like, assuming you meet all other conditions for non-current, of course, but that would be appropriate. But you should, if there's some violation that's expected to happen after the balance sheet date that could cause kind of adverse consequences, you should disclose that, um, at least so the reader knows that this violation is coming, but it's not going to impact classification at all. Right. Yeah. And so in addition to the disclosures in the financial statements themselves, I think that would also trigger disclosure uh, in in the MDNA mm-hmm. discussion, mm-hmm. Uh, liquidity yeah, discussion as well, that that in the in the next 12 months, you have this reasonable, reasonably possible or, or probable covenant violation. And, and at that point, you don't know how that's going to impact. Mm-hmm. So so bringing that into that discussion as well. I, I think, though, there like I recall that there is some discussion about um there can be some situations or it, that the non-current classification is appropriate uh, mm-hmm. unless facts and circumstances indicate otherwise. So yes. what are what are the facts and circumstances yes. so that you would got be me. the exception? So, yes. <laughs> so I said, you know, non-current classification because you're good at the balance sheet date. And that is 
usually the case. But okay, but there is this guidance that's this word, these words that are put into the guidance that says, it talks about these situations um, with covenant violations and everything. It says non-current classification is appropriate unless facts and circumstances indicate otherwise. What does that mean, (laughs) right? Um, We think that facts and circumstances kind of looking at things beyond what's happening at the balance sheet date should be applied in very limited situations, right? When a company includes its more appropriate classification. So we don't see it as the norm. But there is one example that sometimes we see it, right? So let's say a company had something in their debt agreement that maybe said a going concern opinion was an event of default. So in that case, the violation is like is getting the going concern opinion, which is always post-balance sheet date because you get the opinion after the balance sheet date. So you'd say, okay, I wasn't in violation at the balance sheet date, so I'm fine. I should be non-current with disclosure. Um, but some feel that given there is that going concern, you have a serious liquidity issue, right? Um, and it may just seem more reasonable in some cases to make the debt current. I mean, it, it depends, right? Because sometimes the going concern could happen um, based on things that happen after the balance sheet date. But if there's these conditions were present then, um, you know, some feel making the debt current there would make more sense. But it would not be required in that case, since violation is post balance sheet date, you know, but like I said, some would feel to do that. But but there is a bit more to this, though. Like I'm talking about that if you don't have a subjective acceleration clause in the debt. If you have a subjective acceleration clause in the debt, it's kind of a whole nother another story, which I think we can get into. But yeah, these these subjective acceleration yeah. clauses are uh, making this much up. harder. Uh, so, um, but but understand why they're why they're in them. So so yeah, you did talk about those yes. a little bit earlier, maybe, and and how you know when you're thinking about the refinancing type of situation, how yeah. it can cause you a problem in that in that classification consideration, um, but. Maybe just in in basic term debt, mm-hmm. maybe you can walk through this. Like if you have basic term debt, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, you know, maybe we'll get back to this going concern okay. issue. But just <laughs> basic long term debt with a subjective acceleration clause. What's what's the consideration there? Yeah, so it's a different model than like I was talking about with the financing agreement. Like if you just have one, you're done. You know, it's you're not going to get short term debt, so not current. But when you just have basic long term debt, term debt with a subjective acceleration clause. So same thing I talked about earlier, same same things. But for classification, it's a totally different assessment. Um, totally fine to have it in the agreement. Like I said, most of them do. Um, but at each balance sheet date, you have to do a probability assessment to determine if you think it's probable that the lender will force repayment based on that subjective acceleration clause using facts and circumstances at the balance sheet date. So this is one where you're kind of forward looking or you're like trying to get into the head of the lender, right? So if you kind of look at everything and you think acceleration of that debt based on the subjective acceleration clause is probable of happening, then the debt would be current. It might be probable, if, like the guidance suggests this, right? If the borrower has recurring losses or liquidity problems or a significant major event that happened that's kind of impact the company. Um, if you're in the reasonably possible camp, so you think like maybe there's a possibility, um, but it's not probable, then just disclosure of the existence of the SAC is generally sufficient and it won't impact classification. And then remote 
then you're really not doing anything, not impacting classification or disclosure or anything like that. So basically you have to get in the mind of the lender and yeah. <laughs> you have to assess what, how they're going to approach the situation, which is never easy. Yeah. Um, and I think that so because you remember, like you talked about earlier about how companies are saying, looking at the probability and all that, but I think here you can do it, but for right. financing agreements, you kind of, yeah. 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 So I just think about the, the judgment there and, and the importance of, of the documentation, um, yeah. you know, in, in terms of, of what that assessment is and how you're thinking, yes. how you've thought through the the factors there. Um, so maybe bringing back in the going concern opinion that mm-hmm. you referenced earlier, say in that scenario, you have long-term debt uh, at the end of the year, mm-hmm. um, the going concern opinion is issued uh, after the balance sheet date, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's subsequent event. Uh, and the agreement also has the subjective acceleration clause. So it's kind of the combination of, of the yeah. last two examples that we walked through. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is that? Uh, that uh, due to the analysis. Yeah. So the subjective acceleration clause, like I mentioned, the probability of exercise is assessed based on the facts and circumstances at the balance sheet date. Right. So I mentioned earlier, the guidance gives some situations that might lead to a conclusion that it's probable that the debt will be accelerated on the SAC. And one of the, or two of them is recurring losses and liquidity issues. So if there's a going concern opinion issued, now, the going concern assessment is done as of the financial statement issuance date, which is later than the balance sheet date, right? But I think there's a general kind of going in presumption that those liquidity issues that gave rise to the going concern were probably there at the balance sheet date as well. Right. There is a little lag. Um, but so you'd need to do that probability assessment and figure it, think about that. Like, okay, so I have a stack, I have this going concern opinion that says I have liquidity issues, if they were there at the balance sheet date, then, you know, it kind of seems like it's probable that the SAC could be exercised. So current would be more appropriate. Right. There might be situations where one-off things where the event that gave rise to the going concern had nothing to do with the year end. Like it happened after. And I saw that with the pandemic and things like that. So that's a different situation. Um, But we kind of go in with this general presumption that it is probable if you have the going concern. Okay. So just a going concern opinion, probably not going to be a problem uh, because it's going to be after the balance sheet date. Mm-hmm. Just a subjective acceleration clause. You have the probability assessment. Uh, and and so unless there's some other indicator. Like um, you have no going concern. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then the combination going yeah. concern and subjective acceleration clause brings in uh, additional analysis. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. it's not determinative necessarily yeah. the combination of the two, but, but there can certainly be, uh, it may be difficult to, to not push it backwards yeah. to, the, to the 1231 date. So. Okay. That, I think I got it. Uh, maybe uh, we've talked in other situations before mm-hmm. in the current economy, we alluded to it at the beginning here too, just, and, and how companies are thinking about different types of debt, debt arrangements and, and there's always new, new things coming out. But, but one thing we're seeing a lot of, um, is revolving debt arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what have you been seeing there? What are some of the key questions that are coming up uh, uh, relating to those in, term, in terms of classification? Yeah, so we are seeing, like I said, a bit more activity with revolvers. So we wanted to at least kind of touch on it. I think with classification, what I'm seeing is just it's really important. Well, uh, overall, not just revolvers, but to really get a full understanding of how the agreement works and really when you're required to repay borrowings. It, it, you know, with revolvers, 
you're borrowing and paying down. But sometimes with some, you know, some often I would say with revolving debt agreements, you draw down on the revolver and you're really not required to repay that until the overall revolving debt agreement expires. Right. And in those cases, classification, it's just even if you're borrowing and repaying all the time, if you're not required to repay until the maturity date, it doesn't matter that the classification is going to be based on the overall maturity date. But there's I'm seeing like a bit of confusion because some revolving debt agreements, it's say a smaller, much smaller portion, but require each time you draw, there's an execution of a separate note for each borrowing. Right. And if that's the case and you really have a separate note for each borrowing, the borrowing should be classified based on the term of in each individual note, not based on the expiration date of the overall revolving debt arrangement, you know, unless conditions for non-current classification can be met based on refinancing. But but generally it'd be classified based on the individual note. So those are the kind of the two bookends. And you'd think I'm trying to tell people, like, look at those little notes, because those those are making things more short term. But what I actually want to highlight is there's this there's this other kind of thing in agreements that are causing confusion where people think they have short-term notes for each borrowing, but they actually don't. They have an interest rate reset feature. So that's yeah. kind of what I want to highlight. So one example that we see is when the borrower, they'll, they'll draw down. And when they draw down, they can choose from multiple interest rates each time they draw. For example, when a draw is made, the borrower might be able to choose a base rate option, which is a rate that's kind of set in the agreement and is usually kind of based on the full maturity date of the overall revolving debt agreement. Or they can have a variable rate option, maybe SOFR or something like that. When they pick the variable rate option, it uses a short-term variable rate. Let's say they choose SOFR rate with a 90-day term, right? So that's just an interest rate set reset feature. That's not the term of the borrowing. So if the borrower chooses that short-term variable rate loan option, once that short term has expired, the borrower has to tell the bank whether they want another short-term rate or if they want to switch to the base rate. Typically, if they don't inform the bank, it automatically goes to the base rate. But in many cases, what we're seeing is, like I said, it's just an interest rate reset feature. It doesn't have anything to do with when the borrowing is required to be repaid. So even, like I said, even if they choose like the short 90-day SOFR rate term, it doesn't mean you have to repay it in 90 days. It's just it's just what the interest rate is is being set on. So it's just just a thing. I'm not saying that's how the people out there, how your debt agreement works. I'm just saying, just look at it, right? And really make sure you understand it because I've seen some classify something short-term based on this interest rate resets and actually that wasn't how the agreement was working. So it's just kind of a message like because I think people are getting these new agreements to just really look at them and really understand like when you have to repay or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh I think always a good piece of advice yeah. <laughs> with any sort of debt agreement, because uh, there can always be hidden hidden treasures uh in the terms yeah. as you go through. So making sure you understand all those terms and and then what the impact would be and and what what yeah. represents just an interest rate versus versus an actual uh, maturity. So I, I think another thing that comes up sometimes is is you'll have debt agreements where where lockboxes are used. So customer payments may come into a lockbox and and those can be used to to pay pay the debt. What are some mm-hmm. of the, the challenges associated with those arrangements? Yeah. So if you've got a revolver, 
and you have a lockbox. The classification depends on if the lockbox is required to service the debt or not. And it kind of all gets back to, and I can't believe it's the first time I'm bringing this up in the debt classification podcast, but the definition of a current liability, right? So the definition of a current liability is something that's reasonably expected to require the use of working capital. So if the debt agreement requires that, say, all remittances um, from the borrower's customers go into a lockbox and those remittances automatically pay down the debt, then like you can see, right, those borrowings are inherently short term and would be current based on that definition because the lockbox is requiring the debt to be serviced with working capital, the, the AR. So if you had that required lockbox, right, the only way you could get the borrowings on the revolver to be non-current is if the short-term debt could be refinanced on a long-term basis, like I was talking about earlier. But the problem is a lot of them have subjective acceleration clauses in them, the revolvers. And that's when you're in that, like I was talking about that higher hurdle kind of threshold. If you have a SAC, so you're inherently short-term and you're trying to get it to non-current, you can't because you have the subjective acceleration clause in there. Um, so typically, we see those being classified as current. So, so that's kind of the required lockbox. Now, if we go to the, there's also something called the springing lockbox. So that's a little different. That's where you might have, the agreement might require you to have a lockbox kind of in place and set up. But the remittances, let's say, from the borrower's customers are not automatically servicing the debt. Like it only goes into effect if there's an event of default. Once you have an event of default, the lockbox kicks in, right? So those those agreements, the lockbox doesn't impact classification so long as there's no event of default because there's no requirement at based on the current facts and circumstances to service with working capital. So once you have an event of default, that's another problem. You'll get to current. Okay. But um, so I just wanted to kind of make that distinction. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's extremely helpful. Well, I think that's that's all we had planned to cover, but but maybe just uh, any any final advice as companies are thinking about their their classification um, uh, heading into the year end here. Yeah, I guess just to kind of pick up on the revolver theme, just really look at your agreements, make sure you really understand how they're working. You might have to talk to the, you know, maybe it's someone else who kind of set up the agreement, so you might need to involve other people. But good to get that, you know, idea up front. And if you're having any covenant violations, of course, get those waivers uh, as soon as you can and really understand how they work. And if like if you violated a covenant and you're getting a waiver, I think this is basic, I guess. But and you know you're going to violate it again in the next quarter. Obviously, you're going to try to negotiate or modify those future covenants so you're right. not going to fail because then what's the point of getting the waiver? Because you'll still get to a current classification. Yeah, and I think I think that point too because sometimes sometimes these things might come up at the very last minute, right? Yeah. And so then you're scrambling to try to do that. So so obviously thinking about uh, along with the 500 other things that you're thinking about with mm-hmm. with your enclose and yeah. and preparing the financial statements, thinking about that too because there mm-hmm. can be there's a process involved if you're in that situation. Yep. So no, that's great, and and I think maybe in terms of resources, any mm-hmm. any resources you'd highlight? For yeah, people? well, we have our financial statement presentation guide. So chapter twelve kind of has all these things, and then uh, many other scenarios we didn't get the chance to cover. So get to check out when you're uh, doing your balance sheet. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. 
so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.